Did you know at one point there were two professional baseball teams located in St. Louis? We obviously know the St. Louis Cardinals, but did you know that there was another team called the Browns that took up residence there? And no, I'm not talking about the football team. Today we're going to jump in and discuss the history of the St. Louis Browns today on Rounders, a history of baseball in America. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the show. I am your host, Jeff Lambert. So the St. Louis Browns were a Major League Baseball team based in St. Louis, Missouri, from 1902 to 1953. And as a member of the American League, they had their moments of prominence, but they never clinched a World Series title. Their sole American League pennant came in 1944, a year that was heavily influenced by World War II, which impacted the rosters of many teams. But following the 1953 season, the team relocated to Baltimore, Maryland and became the Orioles, marking the end of their time in St. Louis. So what led things to this point? What are the high points of the franchise? How did they start? Why did they move? We're going to discuss all those details. Let's get started, of course, at the beginning of the story by starting off how a club came to St. Louis. So the Browns were originally founded as the Milwaukee Brewers. And I want to say right from the outstart, folks, there are two different teams we could talk about. We could talk about the St. Louis Browns, and then there's the St. Louis Brown stockings. Those are two separate topics. And I want to mention that right off the bat so I don't have people coming after me immediately. Uh, The Brown stockings are a professional franchise in their own right. They're going to get their own episode at some point. We're going to be talking specifically about the St. Louis Browns because they are two distinctive uh, paths, origin stories, if you will. So just laying that out for us to start, okay? So the Browns were originally founded as the Milwaukee Brewers, and they were one of the charter members of the American League, which was founded in 1901. But after just one season in Milwaukee, the team relocated to St. Louis for the 1902 season. Now, that decision was sparked by several different factors. Primarily, they were based around financial difficulties and poor performance. Yes, even after just one season. So the Brewers struggled in that one season in Milwaukee. They finished with a record of 48-89. and And unlike its other American League rivals, the club was not able to, in its inaugural season, poach any big-name National League players which negatively impacted their competitiveness and their financial viabilities. We're going to talk about this a little bit more later, but just as an outset overview, remember the American League was founded as a direct competitor to the National League when it first came up, and it was very prominent in its first years of going and offering larger contracts to players to come play and leave the National League, which led to a war of sorts between the two. So while other teams hit the ground running in 1901 for the American League, the Brewers didn't. <laughs> On top of the fact that they weren't able to snag any big names, their payroll was lower than most of the other American League clubs. They had one standout player that first year. It was a guy named John Anderson. And uh, he was the guy who gave some credence to players uh, being able to make some noise and for fans to show up to the park. But overall, the team performance was really poor. They had the lowest batting average and run total in the entire American League. And fans responded accordingly. It was overall lackluster. 
many games drew fewer than a thousand fans, and the season's final home doubleheader attracted just 200 spectators. Ouch. So despite some claims throughout that first season of eventual profitability, there were rumors by midseason that the franchise was going to get relocated. And the American League had chosen Milwaukee initially over St. Louis, which they had considered for sentimental reasons. There was a belief there that Milwaukee was one of the core cities where there could be a presence established for the American League. And the Brewers president, who founded the club, was really uh, good friends with Ban Johnson, who was the president of the American League uh, when they were founded. So, you know, that was some of the reasons why Milwaukee got that club that first season. But it was very clear after that first one, maybe this wasn't a great idea. Now, ultimately, the decision to move the team away from Milwaukee after just one season was driven by strategic interests. And there's a great article that historians Dennis Peugeot and Greg Arian wrote. And I think they summarized the decision to move the team after one season uh, very well. And this is what they said, quote, St. Louis was a logical destination. A metropolis Johnson had eyed for some time, Johnson being um, the owner of the American League, the president. It was the fourth largest city in the nation, with the added allure of preparing to host the 1904 World's Fair. Unlike most East Coast cities, St. Louis allowed Sunday baseball, and competing for fans with the National League Cardinals made the contemplated move an even more attractive venture, end quote. So despite that initial resistance of, we just put a team here, do we want to move them quickly? The move to St. Louis was finalized, and it marked the end of the Brewers, at least for now, brief tenure in the uh, professional baseball ranks, particularly in the American League. But it did mark the beginning of the history of the St. Louis Browns. So where did the team name Browns come from? Well, this was adopted soon after the club left Milwaukee and went to St. Louis, and it was a nod to the original name of the St. Louis Cardinals, which were the Brown Stockings, who played from the 1880s until 1900. Like I said, their history follows a different path, different professional organization. But the name meant a lot to the city, and it stuck. Now, you may be asking yourself, okay, if the Browns moved to St. Louis in 1902, what about the Cardinals? Were they there? Were they not around yet? Well, the St. Louis Cardinals were around, but they were a part of the rival National League, and they continued to exist alongside the Browns after the club moved to the city. So both teams shared the, you know, the municipality, and they even played in the same ballpark, Sportsman Park, for several decades. The Cardinals were established way back in 1882. They already had a rich history. They had developed into one of the more successful franchises in the National League. And they were overshadowed, or they overshadowed the Browns, I should say, in terms of both performance and popularity when the club moved there. Let's talk about the team logo and the uniforms that they wore. So the Browns underwent several logo changes throughout their existence. But from the onset, The logo uh, was a stylized baseball with the letters SL intertwined, which signified the team's St. Louis identity. Now, over time, there were minor adjustments made to that, but that core design remained consistent. And I'd encourage you, if you haven't already, if you sign up for the email newsletter, which we have a link in the show notes, I include pictures of all of these graphics so you can actually see what I'm talking about. There were some alternate logos that were eventually presented in the 1940s and the 1950s. 
Um, and one notable alternate logo that they used was a baseball glove that was cradling a baseball over the S and L, which emphasized the team's connection to the game. So an interesting way to be able to work that in. So the caps displayed that SL for a time in the early years. Sometimes you would also see a simple B for Browns, but you would always go back to those variations of the S and the L for St. Louis. What about the uniforms? Well, at home from their uh, initial first game in St. Louis, they had the classic white jersey with pinstripes. And the primary logo would be on the left sleeve, and the team name was prominently displayed across the chest. They would wear black or brown caps to complete the ensemble. By the 1930s, the Browns had begun experimenting with sleeve and packet trims, and they had incorporated some orange and brown uh, accents into some of their uniform designs. On the road, the uniform was very similar, but it often had the away gray or cream-colored jerseys, and the team name would remain consistent. Again, just like the home uniform, it would just be a different color. Now, in 1945, just as an aside, when we're talking about these uniforms and logos, the Browns did introduce a special event logo to commemorate their centennial season, and the logo featured the primary emblem, and it was framed in an orange and brown rectangle. So that'd be an example of a special edition that was used by the club. So that's the visualization of what they looked like. Let's talk about the ballpark that the Browns played in. So as I previously mentioned, when they arrived in St. Louis in 1902, they took up residence at Sportsman Park, which was the current home of their crosstown rivals, the St. Louis Cardinals. Now, the park underwent multiple changes during the team's time there, including they moved the diamond from the northwestern part of the stadium to the southwest corner of the park. And they did that because they had constructed new grandstands that were made from, well, they were switched from wood over to steel and concrete in 1909. So they moved the the diamond closer to that new section of the park. And this was considered a very large technical marvel for the time to be able to have this grandstand built out of these more permanent materials. It was only the third park in professional baseball to display this steel and concrete um, construction. Scheib Park was actually the first with the athletics. In 1922, the stadium expanded from 18,000 to 30,000 seats. And this was due to the Browns' ownership, very confidently predicting that the club was going to host a World Series there by 1926. And ironically, this came true. In 1926, there was a World Series at Sportsman Park, but the Browns weren't the ones that were playing in it. It was the Cardinals. So kind of a funny uh, fulfillment of prophecy there. So as the years went on, Sportsman Park had some issues in being able to keep up with the times. So one of the issues that they had was automobiles had become more and more common as we get closer to the 1950s. So parking at the stadium became a major issue. When it was opened, the park was designed in an area where fans would take the trolley games. And that meant that it wasn't able to easily provide a solution for commuters. The park stuck around until 1966 after the Browns left town. But Bush Stadium was the stadium that replaced Sportsman's Park, and it's now the home of the St. Louis Cardinals. So now that we've gotten the basics out of the way for the franchise, let's talk about the ups and downs for them. How did things go throughout their history? We're going to start off with the early years. So we're going to start at 1902 when they made their move from Milwaukee to St. Louis, and we're going to go about 20 years to 1921. So. 
In their debut season in St. Louis, the team finished a respectable second in the American League, and they only trailed the Philadelphia Athletics, who finished first by just five games. Not a bad way to start off your time. During that offseason, though, the club didn't sit on its hands. They wanted to improve rapidly, and they went out and poached six players from their crosstown rival, the St. Louis Cardinals, by offering them larger contracts. Of course, the Cardinals were incredibly upset about this, and this was a larger trend that was happening with other National League clubs losing players to the American League. The Browns also made a huge splash after that inaugural season because they went out and they got New York Giants ace and future Hall of Famer Christy Mathewson. They went to him and offered him a contract almost four times larger than what he was earning with his current club. So these aggressive moves were honestly one of the central reasons why the American and National League presidents finally sat down to find a truce in this player poaching war that had begun in 1901 when the American League came into existence. Now, as part of the agreement that the two leagues came to about poaching players, the Browns had to tear up that contract that they had signed with Christy Mathewson. And years later, Browns team president Robert Hedges said that while he knew he was likely giving up a pennant by relinquishing Mathewson to the Giants, It was more important to bring peace to the game. But imagine one of the big what-ifs with all of those players that they poached and getting the best pitcher in baseball during this time if the Browns couldn't have gotten more success in their early years. Now, things didn't go great during those first 20 years. The Browns only had four winning seasons from 1902 to 1922, but they were very popular at the gate during those first two decades in St. Louis. They actually trounced the existing Cardinals in attendance. So, for example, in 1908, they attracted four times as many fans as the Cardinals. So during this early period, the Browns had three standout names on their roster. First off, we had Barney Pelkey, who was one of the anchor pitchers for this early Browns franchise. Uh, His best season came in 1906. He posted a remarkable 1.59 ERA in 260 innings pitched. I am shocked his arm didn't fall off. And he was also known for being a guy that could really excel at keeping opponents off balance and would limit the runs. So that made him a fan favorite to come out and watch him pitch. Another notable name that emerged early on for the Browns was Branch Rickey. You may recognize that name. This is the guy who became the future executive for the Dodgers that signed Jackie Robinson. He started his career, well, I shouldn't say started, As a player, he spent time with the St. Louis Browns. He was a catcher for the club. And while he was a catcher for the Browns, he transitioned from playing to management and became the general manager for the Browns in 1913. So even at the beginning of his front office career with the Browns, which of course would go on to make a huge mark later on for baseball as a sport overall, he showed this knack for finding diamonds in the rough, just like he did later with Robinson. He was the guy who discovered and signed one of the best players in Brown's history, future Hall of Famer and Brown's great George Sisler, who still has a plaque at Bush Stadium for the Cardinals today because there's there's not a lot of remaining uh, places to be able to go to see uh, the Brown's history in St. Louis. But Branch Rickey started his career with the Browns during this time. So those were the main points that came up during the early years of the Browns. Not great from a winning perspective. But they were popular with the fans early on. They had a future Hall of Famer, young guy that was starting to develop. Before we jump into the next era of the Browns history, 
I think it's really worth noting a scandal that the club was involved in during their early years. And this had to do with the 1910 American League batting title. This is an awesome story, so buckle up, okay? So in 1910, you had two baseball legends. You had Ty Cobb of the Detroit Tigers. We did an episode on him recently about myths and truths about him. I would recommend you check it out. So it was him versus Nap LaJoy, another guy we've talked about when we did the team autopsy on Cleveland's club. So Ty Cobb versus Nap LaJoy. They're locked in this fierce race for the AL batting crown. And the competition was really intense. The stakes were high. This meant a lot, right? So the Browns manager at the time was a guy named Jack Peach Pie O'Connor. It's got to be one of the top nicknames I've heard going through baseball history. And he would play a pivotal role in who would win this batting title. And you got to be asking yourself, wait a minute, Cobb LaJoy didn't play for the Browns. Why would they factor into this decision? Oh, let me tell you, okay? So you got Ty Cobb, right? He's known for having like a really fiery temperament. He's aggressive on the base paths. He's recognized as the biggest star in the American League, arguably, right? But he was unpopular, not only with teammates, but opposing players because of the fact that he played so hard. And we talked about that in his episode. He was not well-liked for that reason. Then you've got Nap LaJoy. He's a popular up-and-coming guy, more of a quiet star. He's putting together an absolutely killer season at the plate. So we get to the end of the 1910 season. Ty Cobb decides, you know what? I'm winning in this batting race currently. I've got a slim lead over LaJoy in terms of batting average and other stats. I'm just going to sit out for the final two games of the season to protect my lead. <laughs> so he didn't want to rack up any more hitless at-bats that might affect his stats. So for the final two games of the season, guess who's playing the Cleveland Naps and Nap LaJoy? The St. Louis Browns. So going back to Browns manager Jack Peach Pie O'Connor, he decides, I really don't like Ty Cobb. I'm going to put my thumb on the scale. So what he did was there was a season-ending doubleheader between the Browns and the Naps. And O'Connor put a rookie third baseman named Red Corridan in the game to play over the starter. And he told him, I want you to play at the edge of the outfield grass. I want you all the way at the back of the infield, right? Doesn't sound like, you know, anything too big, but Nap LaJoy was one of the best bunters and base runners in the league during this time. So he's effectively saying to the third baseman, I want you out of the play. So during this doubleheader, LaJoy went eight for eight at the plate, and seven of the hits that he got were bunt singles down the third base line. So that raised his average enough to surpass Ty Cobb and, hypothetically, be the 1910 American League batting champion. Well, Van Johnson, the president of the American League, obviously saw this. The press saw this and said, this, this, there's, this is not on the level what the Browns did. So Van Johnson got involved and said, even though LaJoy's stats are better now, we can't let this stand because there was obviously cheating involved. So they stepped in and said, stats be damned. Cobb is the batting champion for 1910. And we're going to count up what happened with LaJoy's numbers during that final doubleheader as a clerical error. Ooh. So 
That obviously didn't set well. Ty Cobb wins the batting title in 1910, despite the best efforts of the Browns in order to change the outcome. And to this day, it's kind of a fun debate. You got LaJoy with the higher average, but Cobb still wins the hardware. You know, how much of that should be factored in? So there you have it, folks. The the Browns were involved in some very controversial uh, items that popped up early on during the American League uh, history. Okay, so that concludes the early years. Let's jump over into the exciting years. So from 1922 to 1943, you could say this was uh, somewhat of a high point for the Browns. So let's walk through it. So there was a slow but steady growth that happened for the Browns during the first part of the 1920s. They had George Sisler, who Branch Rickey had identified and brought on. This guy's turning into one of the top players in the league. And the Browns also have a really good young budding outfield that was bringing fans to the park. Number one, you had a guy named Ken Williams. Ken was known for being a solid power hitter. He batted over 300 from 1919 to 1923 and again in 1925. Then you had another outfielder named Baby Doll Jacobson, again, rival for one of the best nicknames in baseball history. He was a fan favorite, not only for his on-field antics, but he was a consistent hitter, and he was a solid defensive term I like to use. He was a dirt dog, diving for every ball, key contributor, just fans loved to watch him play. And then thirdly, you had a guy named Jack Tobin, who maintained a 300-plus batting average during this entire period. And just to backtrack, Ken Williams, that first guy I talked about, the power hitter, he was the first player in Major League history to hit 30 home runs and steal 30 bases in a season. That wasn't surpassed, that initial uh, record that he set, until 1956. He was the guy. So you can kind of understand why fans were going to the park. You got Sisler, you got Williams, you got Baby Doll, you got Jack Tobin. It was an exciting time to be a Browns fan. And in 1922, the Browns had one of their best seasons in franchise history. So their team batting average was 310. It led both the American League and the National League. George Sisler was having an absolutely monster season in 1922. He hit 420 for the season. That's one of the highest single season batting averages in uh, baseball history. And the Browns finished with a record of 93 wins and 61 losses. And they secured the second place in the American League and they only lost out on the pennant by one game, and it happened on the final game of the season. Oh, that hurts, right? So that was the high point, 1922. You had this really exciting core. But then, unfortunately, you get to the back half of the 1920s, and the Browns only had two winning seasons from 1927 to 1941 after that initial success. And I think one of the most embarrassing seasons during that stretch was 1939. They went 43 and 111. That was the worst point in franchise history. So you had that very short period, early 1920s, where you had a lot of players, very exciting fans were showing up. But then you had this really long, sustained period of losing. And that's when the cracks started to show. Because as the Browns got worse in the latter half of the 20s, the Cardinals started getting a lot better and the gap really widened. So by the end of 1926, the Cardinals were outdrawing the Browns by more than 400,000 fans a year. And from that point on, from the mid-1920s, you know, you can make a case that the early 1920s, St. Louis was a Browns town. People would show up there and they would, you know, support that team primarily. From 1926 on, it was a Cardinals city and that never changed from that point on. 
and the Browns owner at the time, Phil Ball, he had invested really heavily in the team to try and make it better, uh, from improving the park to spending on payroll. He was a fan first, and you could tell, but it wasn't producing winning seasons. He died unexpectedly in 1933, and his estate took over the Browns, and they decided, yeah, we're not spending this kind of money on a team that's not winning. So they spent even less than Phil Ball had wanted them to. Uh, It worsened the on-field talent even more. And of course, in response, the attendance continued tanking. So by 1941, the estate ownership of the Browns were actively looking to get out of St. Louis. They felt that there was just no money to be made in the city. It had been tried and it had failed. This was firmly a Cardinals town now. So the owners had reached a tentative agreement to move the team to Los Angeles. This was before the Dodgers agreement had had taken place. And I guess one of the interesting, again, what-ifs in history was the only thing that held up that deal from going through was the events of Pearl Harbor happened and the outbreak of World War II halted those plans from becoming a reality. That kept the Browns in St. Louis And it opened up the door for the Dodgers to move to L.A. instead of the Browns. So kind of an interesting aside there. But the point I'm trying to leave you here with in this middle period we're talking about in Browns history was there were some high points early on, but things just progressively got worse to the point where ownership is ready to get the club out of the city. Now, before we hop into our seventh inning stretch and take a quick break, I want to revisit one of the topics I've been discussing with you over the past two episodes, and that's about this product that I've been taking called Magic Mind. So with this main podcast, with the bonus show This Week in Baseball History, with the top of the first episodes I started, with the full-time job I have, with being a father and being a husband and everything else on my plate, I have been trying to find something that I can use that can give me energy to get through everything on my to-do list but also provides a clear-headedness. And products I've used in the past, caffeine drinks, uh, Celsius, Red Bulls, those kinds of things, they they would leave me very jittery. And it would either be too much and I wouldn't be able to focus like I needed to, or if I drank too little of it, I'd be snoozing before getting everything done on that daily checklist that's so important to me. And that's where Magic Mind came in. It's this little green shot. And it's become essential to my day as a podcaster a father, a husband, a full-time worker, everything I mentioned before. It's really helped me be able to sharpen my focus, to be more creative in my storytelling, and just to have steady energy levels, which is so important on a day-to-day basis. So what's the secret? The thing about Magic Mind I like is that it's all natural. It's packed with new tropics, and it's packed with adaptogens. I get my full dose of vitamins to be able to give myself a little bit more energy when I need it. So I find myself more productive, but I also find myself more present. So if I'm deep diving into baseball history or I'm playing catch with my son in the backyard, or if I'm just needing to get a good night's sleep, I don't find myself being attached to the unfortunate side effects that caffeine can bring. And I have good news for you. This promo has been going so well. Magic Mind has decided to extend their promotion for an additional week for you to be able to take advantage and try out this product. You're going to get one month free when you subscribe for three months if you go to www.magicmind.com forward slash Jan Rounders. Again, that's J-A-N Rounders. If you go to that site, use my code Rounders20 
and you're going to get an additional 20% off the additional one month free. So that's like you're getting 75% off. But remember, this deal is only going for an additional week, so take advantage of it now. I recommend Magic Mind strongly. It's been a great addition to my day to be able to get more done. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick seventh inning stretch, go over some uh, show details, get the bills paid, and then we're going to be right back with the second half of talking about the Browns' history in the city, what happened to them, and, of course, their legacy. Stay with me. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the seventh inning stretch. Uh, You know, this is the third episode we've done this in a row, so I just want to state in case you've been absent for a while, I moved a lot of the introductory things to the middle of the show so we could get right into the topic. If you hate this change, or if you love it, let me know. I'd be interested to hear about your feedback. It's a little tweak I'm trying. So no new comments to share with you this week. Feedback from the community. That's all right. It happens. I wanted to ask you in lieu of that, if you can help me by going on the podcast app of your choice, whatever that is, and can you please leave a review for the show? Could just be the stars that you're clicking. If you have the ability to leave like an actual written review, like on Apple Podcasts, that would mean so much to me. It really helps with the algorithm and making sure that we're getting in front of other people as a top result. I can't do that alone. I need your help. If you like this show and you could take a minute to be able to rate it, that would mean a lot. And of course... Uh, If you've already left a rating or if your podcast catcher doesn't allow that, recommend it to a friend. The number one way that we've been able to grow the show is through referrals. I haven't spent a dollar on advertising for the show or marketing. Uh, It's all been through word of mouth and just people finding it. So help me by being able to recommend this to a baseball fan in your life. It would mean a lot. All right. Secondly, we started a new tradition last week. We are unveiling a trivia question of the week related to the episode. Last week was the re-release of the episode, How Was Baseball Invented? And I asked you the question, who holds the record for the most home runs in their rookie season? And six of you got it right. The answer was Pete Alonzo. So a special thank you to all of you who participated in that weekly poll. I've got a new one for you this week based on the St. Louis Browns. Are you ready? Here it is. Who was the player who appeared in the most games for the Browns from 1902 to 1953, was it Ken Williams, George Sisler, Harland Clift, or Elam Van Gilder? If you know the answer to this without using Google, all you have to do is sign up for the email newsletter to be able to vote. And uh, that would mean a lot to me if you did, because you're also going to get the companion to this episode with all the videos and the photos and the additional insights that you can expand your knowledge of for what we're discussing every week. So take a moment to vote, sign up for the newsletter. All you have to do is go to rounders.substack.com to do so. Thanks to those of you who already have and being a part of the community. And for those of you who haven't, we hope you'll join us. All right, that finishes up our seventh inning stretch time. Let's get back to the good stuff. Talking about the St. Louis Browns. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the episode. Just to do a quick recap, the St. Louis Browns started off as the Milwaukee Brewers in 1901 with the founding of the American League. They moved over to St. Louis after just one season, renamed the Browns. They're playing alongside the St. Louis Cardinals in the same stadium. They have some initial successes. They have George Sisler, who will become a future Hall of Famer. 
They have Branch Rickey, who became their first general manager. Well, not their first, but first of consequence, I guess you could say. <laughs> and uh, he was the one who discovered Sisler in the first place. You fast forward to the 1920s, they get their first like major record. They missed the pennant by one game, just one game. That had to hurt so much. They were involved in that 1910 controversy with Ty Cobb and Nap LaJoy. This is a team that saw brief periods of little things to be excited about, but overall, there is not a lot of winning going on in St. Louis. And by 1941, we see ownership really looking for ways to move the team out of St. Louis with the belief that they just can't compete with the Cardinals, that they're not going to be able to get the toehold they need in order to become profitable. There was that attempt to try and get them into Los Angeles, which was ruined by World War II. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in 1942. In the middle of World War II, how did the Browns do? They actually had a little bit of a last hurrah during this final period of their existence. Let me explain. So, the St. Louis Browns had an unexpectedly good decade during World War II, right? So, we saw the club reach the World Series for the first time, and they played their crosstown rivals, the St. Louis Cardinals. Although they lost that series, it was a historic clash because you had two teams in one city playing each other, a subway series, if you will. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, Jeff, uh, you've been talking about how the Browns have been mostly terrible throughout their history. Why would they suddenly get better during World War II when a lot of the country's best players were overseas serving? Well, that's part of the reason for their unexpected success. Uh, The Browns adopted a unique strategy during the World War II years to gain an edge over their other competitors. I don't know why that was such a hard word to get out, competitors. So basically what they would do is you would have major league stars joining up to fight. Some of them were drafted. And the Browns would capitalize on signing players that were classified as 4F, unfit for military service. So, you know, as we know, players might be rejected for a number of reasons. It might just be having the right family member to get you out of serving. Sometimes it could be physical issues. Sometimes it could be mental-related issues. But there were a lot of uh, physically fit players that were given 4F status. And those players were key contributors to the team. The Browns would actively go out and find those players who had any uh, baseball experience or even just like really good raw athletic experience and sign them to the team. Also, this World War II era was when, to get more fans into the park, this is when the Browns signed outfielder Pete Gray, the only one-armed Major League position player in history. We did a full episode about his life and career, so make sure to check that out in the show notes. So the Browns were trying to be competitive on the field, but also get fans in the stands, right? Paid off. They made the World Series in 1944, and they lost. They made it again in 1947, where they battled the Brooklyn Dodgers in another thrilling World Series. That went to seven games, but the Dodgers ultimately ended up winning. Now, even during this time, making it to these two World Series, uh, trying to, you know, do some publicity stunts like they did with Pete Gray, it didn't help attendance numbers. And that's really what it came down to. The team finished dead last in attendance from 1922 to 1943. And then they were in the bottom three in attendance in 1944 and 1945. We got a little bit better. And then from 1945 to 1953, the Browns struggled to attract more than 300,000 fans in a season. That is terrible. And the club's current owner at the time, Don Barnes, 
again doubled down and said, man, we tried to get out in 1941. We've seen some success, but fans didn't come back. This is a Cardinals town. We've got to get out. So he started looking for a buyer at the end of the 1940s. So 1951 rolls around. The Browns are essentially one foot out of St. Louis. Enter Bill Veck, show promoter extraordinaire, baseball executive. We did an episode on him too. I would check if you're not familiar with him. He's a fascinating um, figure in baseball history. A guy who would try unorthodox ways to be able to get fans into the park. From serving cereal and having morning games to doing more night games to all sorts of different publicity stunts. Well, he steps in with an ownership group and he buys the Browns in 1951. And he does not have the intention of moving them from St. Louis. No, no. He says, we're going to regain the attention and the adoration of St. Louis fans like we did when we first started here. And we're going to force the Cardinals to move out of the city. Now, he firmly felt that the city was only big enough for one team to succeed. So instead of saying, we're leaving, it's like, no, you're leaving. So to start this re-engagement campaign of the fans, Vec started doing what Vec does best. And that was unorthodox strategies to get fans to the ballpark. In one of the most notorious stunts in baseball history, we saw Bill Veck sign Eddie Geidel, who was a three foot seven inch little person, to bat as a pinch hitter for the Browns. And Geidel played in one game, just one game. And he came out of the dugout. He was wearing a child sized Browns uniform. And the number on the back of his jersey was one eighth, the fraction, one eighth. He stepped into the batter's box, never moved the bat from his shoulder, and he walked on four straight pitches because his strike zone was so small that they couldn't throw him a strike. That caught the eye of the American League front office. The AL president, Will Harridge, voided Guidel's contract the very next day. Never played baseball again. He is the shortest person to ever appear in a major league game. You've probably heard that story before, but you may not have known that was Bill Veck and that was the St. Louis Browns where that happened. Veck would try other strategies to get fans into the stands. He would print placards and he would hand them out to fans when they came into the stadium and they would have different uh, words on them like take, swing, or bunt, where they could hold them up to try to give advice to the pitcher or the runner. He sectioned off a part of the grandstands at the stadium, and he allowed fans to take an active part in the game's managerial decisions for that day. They got to vote directly on what the manager would do for in-game strategy if they sat in that section. And one of the funny notes on that, when he tried it that day, legendary manager Connie Mack actually showed up and sat in that part of the um, stands and took part in those decisions against the club that the Browns were playing, which were his former Philadelphia Athletics. So ironically, with the fans calling the shots, the Browns ended up winning that game. So Vec tried all these things throughout 1951. It didn't help. It wasn't working. Fans were not showing up to the park more. Ticket sales were not increasing. So he tried another strategy at the end of that 1951 season. He signed 45-year-old pitching legend Satchel Page, guy that we also did an episode on. And Page pitched well for the Browns during his time. It was short, but it was uh, productive for him. But that was another way he tried to get fans into the stands. So th- there was a lot of creativity here, but it just couldn't cover up the fact that 
even with, you know, adding Guidel as a pinch runner, bringing in Satchel Page, trying to get the fans uh, more interactive, you know, kind of the Savannah bananas of the 1950s we're seeing here. It didn't make up for the fact that the on-field product was terrible. That's really what it came down to. So the Browns lost 102 games in 1951, Beck's first season at the helm. In 1952, they lost 90 games. And in 1953, they lost 100 games. So over the course of three years, Beck tried to get people in the stadium. wasn't working, mainly because the on-field product was terrible. So despite those best efforts, it didn't work. And he saw, I think, by the end of those three years, that there was no chance to be able to gain that ground and get the fans back from being Cardinals' first focus. So after that 1953 season, Beck arranged to move the team to Los Angeles again. But he changed his mind at the last minute, and he sold to a group of owners from Baltimore. The club left St. Louis and became the Baltimore Orioles that we know today. And the relocation of this team was unique for the time because there were a lot of other teams that were going west. You had the Athletics, you had the Dodgers, you had the Braves, all going to West Coast locations. The Browns went east from St. Louis to Baltimore. So let's wrap this up. Let's talk about the overall legacy of the St. Louis Browns. There are some things I think that stand out when we think about this club. Number one, and this is one I didn't mention before, but I think it's important. The Browns were one of the first teams to take a progressive stance on integration. So they were ahead of their time in trying to uh, make the league an even playing field for individuals based on the color of their skin. The Browns signed a guy named Willard Brown in 1947, and he was the first African-American player in the American League. So we see a commitment there to breaking racial barriers. That should be tied to the legacy of the St. Louis Browns. On the downside, when we think about this team and their legacy, they have become synonymous with losing, much in the same way that the Washington Senators have been, uh, un, well, not unfairly, certainly fairly tabbed. Uh, they're just tied into not being able to become a winning franchise. But I think overall, when we think about the legacy of the Browns, there's not a lot of physical footprint left for them. They left St. Louis had been gone for a long time. Traces of the team are few and far between. And again, they weren't a team that got to take their name with them. They had their name changed. They're kind of the lost boys of baseball in a way. I think they evoked this nostalgia for a bygone era, a team that's been lost to history in some ways. So like I said, on top of the fact that they left St. Louis, you know, it's been long enough where the traces of that team are not really there anymore. They lost their name. They became the Orioles. The season after they left St. Louis, the Orioles made a 17-player trade in one season that uh, effectively erased any memory of the team's connections because all the players that played for St. Louis pretty much were moved from the team less than a year later. So to this day, there are some fans that remember the Browns fondly because of the fact that uh, they need their memory kept alive. There are societies that exist that uh, are based in St. Louis still. St. Louis Browns Historical Society, calling you out, one in particular. There's an online museum that's still in operation where you can go and check out memorabilia and documents from the Browns. And in some small way, one little piece of the Browns lives on in St. Louis history. Like I mentioned, George Sisler, who I think was probably the best player to wear the uniform for St. Louis, he has a commemorative statue outside Bush Stadium, the home of the St. Louis Cardinals. 
And um, that kind of is the the placard that still stands for the Browns through Sisler. But overall, this is a team I think that evokes memories of something that's not there anymore, but still has a place in our hearts, despite the challenges, despite the relocations, excuse me, the Browns have a cherished part in baseball history. They defined some norms. They provided significant memories. They produced significant moments. And that's something that all baseball fans can look back on fondly. Folks, I want to thank you for tuning in to this episode. Quick plug for the new show that came out, Top of the First, which are short daily affirmations for baseball fans. I would recommend you check it out. Uh, Two minutes, we're talking like every day. Just a good way to start your day with some motivation that's baseball grounded. I'll put a link in the show notes. You can go to rounders.substack.com to sign up for it. Or if you're already a subscriber, you can update your subscription to include that additional show for you to be able to listen to. Until next time, I hope you have an amazing week. And remember, there are only two seasons, winter and baseball. Rounders, A History of Baseball in America is produced by Jeffrey Lambert. Our research assistant is Cass Silber. A special thanks to our starting nine supporters, Nathan Halverson and Jack Wilson.